Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Today, we'll be talking about the new Supreme Court term and its first arguments and its new justice. We'll also talk about FBI agents' belief that they have sufficient evidence to charge Hunter Biden, the president's son. And we'll talk about President's President Biden's announcement that he's pardoning all prior federal offenses for simple possession of marijuana. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we dive into the show, I I was hoping to get a little advice from my sisters about something um, for the past several months that's been tough for me. So as some of y'all who follow me on Twitter or Instagram may know, during the summer, my husband and I and our kids um, attempted to adopt a rescue dog who was absolutely adorable. Uh, he's five years old. He's very sweet, but for a number of reasons we don't need to get into. He just was not a good fit for our home. And after a few weeks, we had to um, surrender him back. The good news is we do know that he has been adopted. He is in a home. Um, But it was just an excruciating decision as somebody who loves pets, absolutely loves dogs. It was really tough to give them back. And it was also really tough to figure out what to do on social media since I did post it. I just deleted those posts and I haven't said anything more. I don't know what else to say um, because I still feel rather guilty, even though I know it was the right decision. Um, I think I probably do fear uh, judgment a little bit. Um, but now as we are considering trying again with another dog, uh, now that I've healed a little bit, I just want to get, you know, talk to you guys about what you've done when you've had difficult situations, especially those that other people knew about or that you talked about publicly and and what wisdom you can give me as I try to uh, get over the trauma of, of that last adoption and return. Well, I'll share something, Kim. And thanks for sharing that uh, story with us, because I think that all of us have made decisions in our lives. And not only do we either regret the decision or still feel conflicted about the decision, but we're worried about how other people view us based on the decision. So that's really interesting. The first thing I would say is this. Um, People don't pay nearly as much attention to these things as we think they do, or judge us as harshly as we think they will. Um, And I think sharing these thoughts and feelings with a friend is really important because I think your friends can reinforce that idea that, you know, nobody's judged you. We've all been there. We've all changed our mind about something. And uh, I don't think anybody holds it against you that you made a choice that you thought was best for your family. I think the other thing that I've tried to um, utilize in my own life is some advice I got when we were going through the training process for U.S. attorney. And one of those things was, you know, making all decisions involves two parts. One is gathering sufficient information. And then the second is making the decision. And if you do the first part right, then making the decision, you know, may not be easy, but you can do so without regret that we gathered all the sufficient information and we made the best decision we could at the time. It may be that you learn more information later that causes you to regret the decision, but you can only do what you can in the moment. And so I think... um, that approach to uh, making decisions can be a little bit liberating and help free you from some of the guilt that you might feel after the fact. 
Yeah, you know, I think you're right, Barb, um, when you say that we're always a bigger blip on our own radar screens than we are on other people's, and folks aren't usually scrutinizing your decisions. But Kim, I have a story for you that's actually pre-internet, so I didn't have to deal with social media on this. And um, so I know a lot of my friends and neighbors listen to the podcast, and they all know this, but our second child was born with a congenital heart defect and had open heart surgery when he was a few days old, again at six months, and has had long-term issues. And the decision that I struggled with was whether or not to go back to work. And to be honest, it wasn't much of a struggle because I was our medical insurance when he was born. And this was 1992. There was no Affordable Care Act. Um, If I didn't go back to work, we weren't going to be able to insure this kid who had multiple surgeries ahead of him. But I also thought it would be good for me to go back to work. I took a long time off, had a fabulous boss. We had an acting U.S. attorney named Carol Privet who made it possible for me to work from home and work part-time from home federal government back at that point in time um, had no maternity leave on offer. But the difficulty was this, and it's sort of your situation. There were a lot of people who were going to judge me for going back to work, you know, for going back to work at all with my second kid, let alone with this kid who um, was medically fragile. And what I took away from the situation is really nobody should judge you if they haven't walked a mile in your shoes. And it was a complicated decision. We were lucky to have lots of great support. And when I was at home, I was always 100% at home. And I cut back on, on what I did. I cut back on travel for a long time while he was small. But um, I just say that to say sometimes you just have to live your own life. The people that love you and care about you will get it, and they won't judge you. And for me, um, there have been a number of tough choices where you weigh all the factors. And I think Barb was really correct is you gather all the facts and you make a list of all the pros and all the cons. Um, But there are some where you don't have time to do that. You have to respond immediately. And there was one incident where I was on live TV doing commentary and they played a clip. Um, And I don't want to go into the details because then I'm telling more than I really want to tell. Um, But I was really emotionally touched by what I was listening to. And I know my eyes welled up. And the producer came on and said, do you want to say something? And I had, you know, just an instance to decide whether I was going to reveal why I was so emotionally touched by what I had heard or not. And on this, I didn't have time to think about it, and I decided that I wouldn't. And I sort of now regret that because I think it was a, a rare opportunity to share something personal in a way that could have affected other people and the situation. But that opportunity is gone because I didn't do it. So sometimes you just have to decide and go forward. And nobody knew that that happened except the producer and me. That sounds like good advice for somebody who's thinking about getting a dog, Kim. Just go ahead and do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the decision to get a dog, that's a no-brainer. I mean, I, I've learned from my 14 wonderful years with Boogie that I was meant to be a doggy mama. Um, and I also learned through this experience with uh, this very sweet, very cute mixed breed terrier who I hope has a wonderful life with his new family um, that 
sometimes it's very difficult to make that decision that your home is not the right one for him and he is not the right dog for you. Uh, I've cried a lot, but I feel much better with the advice that you gave. So thank you so much. Can't wait to see your pictures. Yes. (laughs) So many cases to talk about from SCOTUS's last week, but I also want to talk about the boldness and creativity of how Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson handled her first oral arguments. Barb, I'm going to start with you talking about the EPA. Last term, they destroyed the Clean Air Act, as well as the power of administrative agencies to solve problems within their own expertise. This week, they heard arguments that could destroy the Clean Water Act. Tell us what that case is about and why it's so important. Yes, well, this week marked the first Monday in October, so that means the new Supreme Court term, and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson took her seat, which led to some reshuffling of the justices sitting in different order, which is kind of interesting. But the first case up was a case called Sackett versus EPA, and it, uh, it, it involves a couple in Idaho who bought some land, and then when they went to build uh, a home on the land, they were told um, by the EPA that they had to stop work because they were building on wetlands that are protected by the Clean Water Act. And so uh, a lawsuit um, emerged. They sued the EPA to try to get relief from the rules so that they could build their home. And the case has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, And they are seeking to overturn a decision that was decided 50 years ago uh, that defines uh, what constitutes... uh, traditional navigable waters that are to be protected under EPA rules. And so there was some debate back and forth. Uh, Their lawyers say that ordinary citizens should be able to use their own eyes to determine what's a wetland covered by the Clean Water Act. And the EPA says, no, you know, not necessarily. You can get a determination from the Army Corps of Engineers uh, based on what is and isn't. And so they are wrestling with how to define what is meant by this idea of uh, water of the United States. Um, I saw a a, a reference to it as, you know how there's POTUS for president of the United States, V POTUS for the vice president, FLOTUS for the first lady. This would be WOTUS, water of the United States. And so um, what, what counts as that? And there's, so there's some language and looking to originalism and other kinds of things. Um, And one of the justices who was the hottest of a hot bench was uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who had a lot of questions trying to reconcile not only the language, but the purpose of Congress in um, trying to establish these rules about protecting clean water. At one point, she even received a note uh, from Chief Justice uh, John Roberts. And after that, she stopped asking questions. So it's raised the question of, did he tell her to stop stop asking questions and pipe down? So really interesting dynamics. Um, But, you know, she asked questions. That's her job. She's on the bench. She's not going to be a potted plant. Great contrast to Justice Clarence Thomas, who for years never asked a single question. But this case is really critically important because it is of a piece with other cases that seek to, to, to dismantle, some say, the administrative state. You know, the court doesn't just get to decide cases. They choose which cases they're going to decide. And so some see this as a continuing assault uh, against administrative law um, and requiring Congress to define very precisely all of the things that are meant. And unless Congress 
defines every term, uh, administrative agencies cannot do so. And so that's what's at issue in this case is kind of the power of the administrative state. And so we'll see how, how this case comes out. It also was largely based on one word, adjacent. What does adjacent mean? And it seems obvious they were arguing that there's a road between the water and the land and therefore it's not adjacent, even though the wetlands run under that road. But uh, Kim, I want to continue on this Clean Water Act with you because you wrote a great piece about what hangs in the balance that I urge our viewers, our listeners to uh, read, and it's in the show notes. But can you just talk a, a little bit about that very quickly? Yeah, just briefly. This, like many other cases before the Supreme Court, the impact will be much broader than what happens to the Sacketts in Idaho on their plot and their desire to build their house, right? If the EPA has to adopt this very narrow reading of wetlands, but, you know, basically, does it look wet? Or, you know, is there a road between this and the and the shore? Um, that the impact can go much more broadly. And of course, it has a disproportionate impact on marginalized communities. And I was reading one of the amicus briefs in this case on behalf of Indian tribes, and it talked about how wetlands are so important to their communities. For example, um, near the Great Lakes, there is wild rice uh, that grows. That's the only place in the world that it grows. And it grows on water, and it's in wetlands, and it's a crucial part um, of Indian tribes and Indian bands, not just their community and their economy, but also their traditions and their ceremonies. And this is the, the same rule that the Sackets are seeking to whittle down. It's the same rule they use to block a, a mine, a sulfite mine, from being built and not only potentially wearing away the, flood land, uh, the, the wetlands, which could flood their community, but also polluting that water, both of which would threaten this ancient grain that these people have been growing for generations. So it, that's just one way. There are any number of ways that the destruction of wetlands affects communities. You know, it displaces people, black people from Louisiana when climate change brings hurricane after hurricane and destroys uh, those wetlands down there. It's just so many ways that this impacts people, the people who can least afford it. Um, and the people who have been already the most marginalized. So this isn't just about this Idaho couple. It's much broader. Okay. Uh, and another case that was argued this week would eviscerate Section 2 of the Voters' Rights Act. And it comes from Alabama, as was the Shelby County Don't case. Don't they all? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, which is why, of course, Joyce, I'm going to turn to you and uh, ask about this case and Tell us what is Section 2. We know Section 5 was the preclearance that got totally destroyed. And how did it get to SCOTUS? And what were the arguments on both sides of this? And who's going to prevail? Yeah, um, I wish I knew, Jill. I mean, that's, you know, I've been getting text messages all days, uh, all day from judges and prosecutors and lawyers in Alabama who are speculating about whether it's going to be as bad as we think it's going to be because you know, the worst outcome here really could eradicate Section 2. Um, and so I think it's worth just rehearsing just a little bit what the trajectory here is to make sure that our listeners understand. The Voting Rights Act gets passed in 1965 as part of the Civil Rights Act. It's meant to end racial discrimination in voting. 
And that used to be a really popular bipartisan goal. The Voting Rights Act had to be re-upped by Congress uh, every set number of years. That happened along strong bipartisan votes during Republican administrations. Absolutely no problem. And then the Voting Rights Act hits a speed bump, essentially when Alabama challenges it in Shelby County versus Holder. The most important part of the Voting Rights Act, in my mind, was Section 5, which said that if you were a state or a jurisdiction that had a history of discrimination, you couldn't just pass changes to your voting laws. You couldn't create new polling places or new rules restricting early voting without getting it either pre-cleared by the Justice Department or approved by a panel of judges in D.C., So in Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court says, oh, you know, there's no more discrimination. It's really not a problem. So this existing preclearance formula is unconstitutional, and we're going to do away with it. Since Congress has not acted since then, that means that Section 5 can no longer be used. People like to say it's been gutted, and that's a precise definition And so without Section 5 in place, Section 2 becomes much more important. And historically, it's been used mostly to address gerrymandering kinds of concerns. That's really where it's primarily been used because it it was viewed as potentially being much more difficult to prove. Initially, folks thought that you had to prove the intent to discriminate, to make out a Section 2 claim. It is really hard to prove intent to discriminate because legislators are smart enough that they don't say that quiet part out loud because they know that litigation is coming. Well, fortunately, Congress added some language that meant that discriminatory impact was enough. These provisions that states passed that had a discriminatory impact could be challenged under Section 2. That happened a lot with gerrymandering. That's what happened in this case. And and the problem, the concern here, is that Section 2 will now be gutted so that it will require litigants to prove intent to discriminate before they can get any redress for these burdens that are put on voting. And Kim has written about this and talked about this a lot, I think, in a more intelligent way than I do. I like what she said. She said that essentially what they're trying to do is force the courts to redress racial discrimination without considering race. And that just doesn't make any sense. But that's the outcome that Alabama is urging um, in SCOTUS. I I wish that I could say confidently that it's malarkey and that they will lose, but I suspect that they will win at least in part and will have to assess the damage and move forward. And possibly pass more laws. And, and, um, you know, Barb mentioned how active uh, Justice Jackson was in her first appearance on the Supreme Court podium. And um, Kim, I thought she was remarkably active during arguments, uh, particularly compared to how new justices are generally expected to behave, which isn't like uh, Justice Thomas, who did it for years and years and years and years. Um, But could you talk about that, and especially how she turned originalism on its head in the voting rights case that we've just been talking about? Yeah, so it's um, it actually in a, in a story that my husband, Greg Storr, wrote for Bloomberg. He noted that 
She said more than 2,000 words in that Voting Rights Act case, which is more than most justices say in any oral argument ever, regardless of how long they've been on the bench. And traditionally, new justices, yeah, they're a little, they sort of wade in a little more carefully. They may ask a question or two, but they don't overdo. Justice Jackson was not here for that kind of for that kind of formality in a case like this when the stakes were so high and I think that I loved is we talk a lot about originalism and how conservatives like to say you know we have to go by the intent of the framers and what they said and when uh, the solicitor general from Alabama tried to contend that you have to use this you know uh, colorblind way uh, of viewing districting uh, and redistricting and line drawing in order for it to be constitutional. Kataji Brown Jackson said, hold up just one minute. And she read from a report uh, from the Joint Committee on Reconstruction and a report that was written by the drafters, by the framers of the 14th Amendment to say, no, no, when you look at that, you see that the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to try to make the people who had been freed after slavery, full and participating citizens and protect them from racial discrimination. That's what the 14th Amendment is for. You can't turn around and I'm paraphrasing. You can't turn around and say that that's precisely why you can't use it. That doesn't make any sense. That's not an originalist argument. And that was really fantastic. And I think that's a good preview of what we can see from her in these constitutional cases. And can I just briefly note, too, I want to give um, a shout out also to Justice Kagan, who, you know, in her 12 years on the bench, Justice Kagan was one who you could rely on to try to find consensus on the court if it could be found, either to try to convince the conservatives um, that a position they're taking may not be the best one, or at least find a narrow way to rule on a case that can bring some conservatives and some liberals together to keep from having a catastrophic result. And you can see her doing that at oral arguments. Now she's done. Like she was so done. Like she didn't even try to do that. When the Alabama Solicitor General was trying to say with a straight face that this map was permissible, again, I paraphrase, Justice Kagan was like, how can you bring this super duper racially gerrymandered map? Like this is a slam dunk case for racial gerrymandering. Stand up here from a state that has a long history of racial shenanigans and try to tell me to adopt a colorblind test? Like, really, sit down. Her questions were so, like, curt to the point and shutting it down that I think that's also an interesting thing. We should look for this term, a new Justice Kagan who is just through. She's through, y'all. She has it no was, more you-know-what's left to give. I, I saw yeah. that, too, with her. Yeah. It was a brilliant um, set of questions from... Kagan and from Justice Jackson. It was really a wonderful case. I thought Justice Jackson but, was like, you know, a jujitsu uh, master, <laughs> uh, you know, using their own arguments against them and twisting them around, throwing them right back at him. Like, what just happened? Wow. Uh, it, it was really, it was really brilliant because, you know, they talk about originalism, but they, they tend to only look at the, the era of the framing of the constitution and not the era of the framing, you know, around the civil war when those civil war amendments were put forward. So I thought it was a really brilliant move. More, It was more, like a please. boomerang. Yeah, I, th <laughs> I thought it was like a boomerang where, whoa, back and forth and back and forth. It was great. But all right, let's move to the last case we're going to talk about today, which is Mar-a-Lago goes to SCOTUS. And um, I, it was really funny when I was doing extra research to prepare these questions, I put in something like, 
Um, Mar-a-Lago goes to SCOTUS. <laughs> I got driving directions to get from Mar-a-Lago <laughs> to SCOTUS. <laughs> oh, that's great. I loved it. I, it was hysterical. But, okay, but the case is not so funny. So, Kim, would you tell us what just happened? And, yeah. um, you know, you may have to fill in some procedural history because I know that even lawyers, friends of mine who I'm visiting in New York, are like, what is going on here? What? Who's appealing yeah. what and from whom and what's going on? But, you know, like, just go through, is this just a delay tactic going to the Supreme Court? Is there any chance that this is going to succeed? What's happening in the 11th Circuit? What's the Department of yeah. Justice doing? So there's a lot going on with this mar search warrant. There's a lot going in, but I think it's actually pretty simple, Jill. Um, the answer is yes, it is a delay <laughs> tactic, more or less. So essentially... What happened, as we've discussed before, you had this uh, judge in this case, a Trump appointee who seems to be behaving like a, ju- a Trump appointee, Judge Cannon, who basically halt the work of the, halted the work of the DOJ, appointed the special master to go through all of these cases about claims of both um, privilege, which are nonsensical, but they included these documents that are clearly marked as classified in that determination. So what the 11th Circuit did was they kind of went in and said, all right, we'll let most of that ruling stand, except these 100 really sensitive classified documents, we're going to go ahead and let the DOJ uh, use that in their investigation. And uh, Donald Trump went to the Supreme Court, you know, that famous court that he appointed three justices on, and asked for them to, you know, come in and overturn the 11th Circuit. A bunch of reasons why this won't work. Now, while Donald Trump has, in his administration, had some success with the court on the shadow docket, we've talked about the shadow docket before, right? These emergency orders that are outside of the regular docket. Um, When he was in office, things like, you know, uh, the Trump administration fighting back against, um, you know, uh, orders that um, state, COVID orders that forced churches to close down and the Trump administration sided with churches. The, the Supreme Court largely went along with that. But the place that the Supreme Court does not go along with are things like trying to keep documents from being produced. We saw that with the January 6th committee. The Supreme Court did not grant Donald Trump's attempts to try to block uh the, the the January 6th committee from getting documents for him. So I don't think in this case it's going to work. This is also coming out of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which the Supreme Court tends not to overturn. It's a more conservative court. And so if they made this decision, I think the Supreme Court is going to give that significant weight. So I do think this is a delay tactic. I don't think that it is going to hold much water. I mean, all of this is actually working to delay things, at least, you know, temporarily. Uh, but I don't think it's a win. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to my experience in Watergate, where even the most private conversations of the president are not exempt from disclosure when they are needed for, uh, in that case, a criminal case, in this case, criminal and possibly national security. So I think you're right on target. New reporting this week indicates that federal investigators have told prosecutors in Delaware that they believe they have sufficient evidence to charge Hunter Biden, the president's son, with tax violations and lying to purchase a gun in 2018. 
Um, you know, Kim, first, I want to ask you this question. How does a story like this, do you suppose, leak out to the press? Like, how do we know this? Mm. Did the FBI or IRS or whichever agency is investigating this leak it? Like, what incentives might they have? Or is this coming from political opponents of President Biden? I mean, how do you think this gets into the public domain? So it could be any of the above. I think you hit the nail on the head when, uh, generally speaking, when I, as a journalist, receive some sort of tip or some information, one of the first questions I ask is what does the person who gave this to me have to gain by giving me this information? So I think the one thing we do know for certain that there was an incentive to leak something like this, because just like, you know, we discussed before, it's really rare that investigators are the ones, agents are the ones to say, hey, I think there's enough here to charge. That's usually something that's announced by a prosecutor. So to me, what this says is there are either agents on this case or people involved or someone who wants to put a little pressure on prosecutors to bring this case against Hunter Biden. And that's why we're seeing this. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It may very well be that these investigators do believe there's enough evidence there. But that is probably one reason why it leaked. But I want to hear from you guys, too, in your experience, why you found that things like this leak. What do you think, Joyce, Jill? I'm reminded of... I think it's evil. I'm reminded of um, the situation involving Hillary Clinton and Jim Comey. It's just really hard Mm. not to believe that history may not, you know, rhyme. Or what is it? History may not repeat, but it rhymes. Mm. So what do you think, agents? I'm with Joyce on that. I think... Um, I, I have a hard time believing it could be prosecutors. Mm-hmm. It should not be agents. It violates federal law to reveal what's going on in a grand jury investigation. But the story is phrased as though it's coming from agents. I'll, I'll wait to see what the reporting suggests. I don't want to feel badly or think badly of people until we know for certain. Yeah, I... Um I, I'm often reluctant to believe that it's f- for sure prosecutors, but also even agents, because um, I, I think that there's also the possibility that political opponents of President Biden could be involved. Um, Joyce, when you were U.S. attorney, I'm sure you got this all the time, people who wanted to play you and use you uh, to get a good headline. And so they, they'd call up the U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI and they'd make some baseless report about public corruption or something by their political opponent, you know, um, the incumbent yep. uh, it, it is up to no good and I'm his you know, political rival. And they want a headline out of it so that they can say, oh, look, the FBI is investigating this person for no good. And, you know, it turns out there's no merit to the claim whatsoever. So I don't know. Um, I, I guess we need to wait and see what, what happens here. All right, well, let's, let's just take... Uh, it at its face value then and say that uh, the agents actually do believe that there's enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden. Joyce, does that mean that charges should be filed? No, not necessarily. Um, and I, I do think it's important to key on, in on the fact that it's agents. And look, Barb, you've worked with agents like I have, as, as has Jill. Any agent who has worked on a case for long enough believes that it should be indicted immediately and that the evidence is rock solid. And something, and this is sort of inside baseball, but at the Justice Department, agents get their statistic when a case is indicted. That means for evaluation purposes, when they're evaluated that year, they're judged on the number of their investigations that proceeded to an indictment. 
but prosecutors get their statistic in a different place um, upon conviction. And that's consistent with the federal principles of prosecution, which suggests that prosecutors should not indict a case. They shouldn't indict just because there is evidence that suggests a crime has been committed. They should wait until they have sufficient evidence to believe that they can both obtain a conviction at trial and maintain it on appeal. And that's a much more sophisticated decision that involves a a, a much more weighty calculus than just saying, yeah, there's enough evidence here to prove a crime, let's go. You really have to think about whether there are any legal issues involved in the case and, and not just look at the evidence and say, I think it's enough. Will a jury think it's enough? That's part of your job as a prosecutor. Yeah, and do you think it is legitimate to think about the public reaction if charges either are or are not filed? Is that something that you know no. this, this, this uh, U.S. attorney in Delaware should be thinking about? You know, that's just not a part of the calculus. If, if Hunter Biden has violated the law, if you would indict anybody else with the quantum of evidence that you have, then you should prosecute him. And if the evidence is faulty or if there are good legal defenses and you wouldn't indict anybody else, then you shouldn't indict him. But the public's opinion doesn't weigh into that. It's strictly a decision based on the law and the facts. Yeah, I actually have a little piece coming out on this in MSNBC Daily, and I quote Janet Reno, who used to always say, you know, I'm damned if I do, I'm I'm damned if I don't, because there are going to be critics from one side or the other. So I might as well just do the right thing. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's uh, a good lesson for a case like this. Jill, let me ask you about this. The prosecutor in this case, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland, says this case will be handled by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. What do we know about that prosecutor? We know um, a lot, actually. His name is David Weiss. He has been a, a deputy to the U.S. attorney for many years before he became the U.S. attorney. He also was in private practice. He went in and out. He's been in the office under Democrats and Republicans. He's widely believed to be a straight shooter, um, you know, having served under both Democrats and Republicans. He... I think is someone who was left in place. He is a Republican. He was appointed by Trump as the U.S. attorney. And he was specifically left in place by President Biden because there was a pending, you know, case investigating President Biden's son, Hunter. And so that there would be no question that he wasn't trying to cover up or protect his son, he left the U.S. attorney that Trump had put in place he left him in office. And I think he may be the only Republican that is left. I'm not 100% sure on that, but he's certainly one of only a few if he's not the yeah, only one. Yeah, I think one. he was left in place solely for this case. Do you yes, think that exactly. if um, Merrick Garland disagreed with his charging decision, he could or would overrule him? Well, he could, no question about that. That's the job of the attorney general is to make these final, final decisions in Uh, sensitive cases like this. I think he would if he really felt strongly about it. Obviously, it's a political, uh, I don't know, IED for him to do that if the actual recommendation from uh, the attorney general, uh, the U.S. attorney, Weiss, would be to go ahead with it. It would be really hard to say no. And I think that he might follow the advice of Weiss unless it's so clearly, blatantly 
not supported by the evidence that would lead to a conviction and to sustaining the conviction on appeal. There has to be enough. But as long as there is enough to justify it, I can't see him um, undoing whatever Weiss recommends. And it's not just Weiss, right? I mean, there are career prosecutors in the Delaware office working the case. So that sort of deference to decisions made by career prosecutors, I think, is always the hallmark of of a good leader of the Justice Department. Assuming, like you say, Jill, that it's not something that's just way outside of the normal parameters. Joyce, do you think that the... um policy memo at DOJ on election year sensitivities come into play in this case? In other words, do you think they have to wait until after the election before they can make a charging decision on Hunter Biden? No, I really don't. Hunter Biden is not on the ballot. And this mythical, you know, this policy at DOJ has taken on almost mythical sorts (laughs) of proportions, right? I mean, my understanding... Um, and of course, it's not a written policy. It's it's an understanding that DOJ should not play any role in trying to influence the outcome of elections. So you go low key, run silent and deep when you're too close to an election with a candidate on the ballot who's under investigation. You know, Hunter's not on the ballot. Nobody in his family's on the ballot. This policy is not meant to create some sort of special rule that protects politicians during an election year. And I fear that that's where we're headed. So, Kim, let me ask you about uh, the political consequence. Do you think that um, if Hunter Biden is charged or if charges are declined, that that could have any impact on either the 2022 midterm elections or the 2024 presidential election? I don't. I don't know, particularly for the midterms. I think if he's charged, okay, I think if anything, it may kind of, to the extent that it still exists and I don't hang out in conservative um, conspiratorial uh, circles, so I don't know the extent that it does still exist, this whole like, what about Hunter Biden and lock him up kind of aspect of that part of the electorate. I think if anything, it diffuses that, right? Because there was this whole idea that, oh, they're going after Donald Trump, but they're letting Hunter Biden go. If the same, you know, Justice Department is investigating and charging, well, charging Hunter, they haven't charged Donald Trump, but they're charging other people associated with January 6th. I think it diffuses that argument a little bit and takes a little punch out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, I mean, again, I... I just don't think that this is really going to have that big of impact now. Now, 2024, I don't know. It depends on who is at the top of the ticket on the Republican side, how they choose to message. That can be a different case. But I think for 2022, I think that the impact is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Jill, what do you think? You know, Do you think voters make decisions based on the misdeeds of relatives? I mean, we all remember billy carter and roger clinton and it didn't seem to have too much impact on their uh more powerful brothers what what do you think so well first of all i'm glad that i'm not the only one who remembers uh (laughs) billy carter and uh roger clinton uh billy billy beer but the actual scandal involving billy carter was really more his getting money from libya while president carter was president is that frowned upon is that is frowned upon, and Carter issued a statement saying that, and by the way, Billy did register as a foreign agent. He wasn't initially, but he did quickly register. But um, President Carter, who is a man of great integrity, um, who I had, you know, as you know, I'm biased, I worked for him, but 
he, he really was a man of great integrity, said uh, in a statement, uh, my brother has no impact on policy before this. He will have none after this. And in fact, my future relations with him are governed by his conduct. And they pretty much cut off relationships. So, and it is said by some that it impacted Carter's reelection bid. He was not reelected. But I don't think that's why uh, there were so many other issues, the price of gas and gas lines, like n nothing like what we have now. I mean, I'm talking about serious gas lines where you'd wait hours to be able to get any gas. Um, and so I don't think it really did. And the same thing with Roger Clinton, who was a half-brother to the president. He's an actor and a musician. He's had a number of drug and DUI charges and was maybe most seriously accused of taking money from a Gambino to lobby his brother to pardon uh, him. And um, he was not pardoned. And so I don't think in, in my memory and in my reading and in my research, I do not think it had any impact on anything. Uh, and most of this happened after President Clinton was already in his second term. So um, it didn't didn't have a, uh, you know, and, and he was treated by the law. I mean, he, he was convicted. He did have a day or two in jail. So I, I don't think it had any impact. Yeah, I think all of us have a relative or two or know someone who does, um, who is, uh, you know, embarrassed us once or twice. I think maybe in some ways, if Hunter Biden is, is charged, as Kim said, uh, you know, people will hold it less against the president and just say, you know, and, and feel like maybe they can identify with them a little better. And isn't it funny how some presidents have kids who they actually hire to work for them in jobs they don't deserve? <laughs> and they can get all kinds of patents out of China, but nobody even <laughs> says a word. Hey, Barb, you know something that uh, Greg and I have been doing a lot more lately is going to the local fish market to buy fresh fish for our dinners. And I feel like that that's a choice that the folks at Noom would really get behind. Do you use Noom, by the Funny way? Funny you should ask Kim uh, I, I, that uh, whether I use Noom. Yes, I do. Um, I've been using it for about a year and a half now. And I, I lost a bunch of weight, but mostly I love it because... I feel really healthy and fit, and I'm just making such better choices about what I eat. I'm just sort of, you know, I know this word is overused, but mindful about what I put in my mouth. Um, I'm really avoiding processed foods, so a lot more fish, a lot more vegetables and fruits, um, and avoiding things, um, you know, like... Um, fast food, takeout, some of those kinds of things that are so easy and convenient. But with um, Noom, you can count your calories and all of your fitness activities in one place. When we decide to get fit, it's usually not just about the number on the scale. Whatever your reason is for wanting to make a change, Noom Weight is ready to help. Noom Weight's psychology-based approach empowers you with the knowledge and support to build lasting results. The Noom app has helped millions of people improve their health and is super easy to use. And they know every journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. It's like having a personal trainer in your pocket. <laughs> and Barb, as you got seen by all of us last week in Texas, you look fantastic. So it's a really good thing that Numa's done. You can't for see you. this right now, but I'm flexing my thighs. <laughs> <laughs> and and I too have been using Noom. 
And I'm in New York now buying a whole bunch of new clothes because my old clothes are really just too big now. And that is such a gratifying thing to have happen. Noom shows you how to pursue your goals. Whatever. On Thursday, President Biden made a statement on marijuana reform in which he announced a pardon of all prior federal offenses of simple possession of marijuana, and he directed the attorney general to develop an administrative process for the issuance of certificates of pardon to people who were newly eligible. President Biden concluded by saying that too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana and that it was time for us to right these old wrongs. I thought that this was just a great policy change, long overdue, but let's dive a little bit deeper to make sure we understand what's going on here. Jill, why don't you start us off by talking about the kind of crimes that are involved? President Biden announced that he would pardon anyone who had simply possessed marijuana, that not somebody who sold it, not somebody who carried it across state lines, but someone who possessed it. And this, I, I just think we need to point out, deals only with those who are on federal property when they do it, because otherwise it's not a federal crime, it's a state crime. So if you were on an army base smoking pot, that's a federal crime. If you're in a national park, that's a federal crime. So it's a small number of people. We're talking about maybe 6,500 people who are pardoned. And it also covers anybody convicted in the District of Columbia, which is probably in the thousands also. But the bulk of people who are affected are state violations. And part of what he did was also to call upon governors to follow his lead. And states have done Yeah, that. I wanted to ask you about that because this doesn't stop with Biden. As you point out, he's talking about simple possession, lots of misdemeanors. Um, we called this the CVB docket in my old office where we would go and prosecute crimes that took place uh, in many cases on federal territory like Talladega National Forest. Um, so what happens next? Do you think that there will be some state action as a follow-on? He certainly encouraged it, and I would certainly hope so. This sort of goes back when I was younger, and there was a lot of draft dodging, and people were convicted for avoiding the draft during the Vietnam War and getting pardons for those people so that they could go on with their lives and not have a criminal conviction that would prevent them from getting certain employment, get them from living certain places, getting loans, etc., so I, I think the time has come where many states have now legalized uh, possession and use of marijuana, and the statistics on its harmful effects are very clear that it's, it's not harmful in the same way that other drugs are harmful. And he was very clear, by the way, uh, Biden was very clear that he is not, you know, it's only possession. It's not the more serious crimes that he would consider felonies that are being pardoned. Now, of course, you can't possess it unless someone sold it to you, but those people are still in the uh, sites of federal prosecution. So, Kim, these were people who, in many cases, were already out of prison. What's the significance of, of granting pardons? Why did they need them, and, and what's the benefit here? 
Yeah, I think um, the reasons are things that Jill uh, already hit upon in a lot of ways. So, yes, these are mostly people who are out of prison. The people who are still in prison were likely charged because they were in the District of Columbia or some other federal jurisdiction. Um, But it is about 6,500 people. But it can have, even a conviction, a federal conviction for simple possession can have such dire consequences in all aspects of life, you know. It can prevent people from uh, getting loans to go to school, to go to college. Um, it can prevent people in some situations for from qualifying for housing. It can prevent some people. I've had jobs that if I had a conviction for marijuana possession, I wouldn't have got that job. At newspapers, I'm not just talking about the public sector. In the private sector, that would have been a disqualifier for me to get that job working as a reporter in a newspaper had I had a conviction for uh, simple possession. They can impact child custody disputes. They can impact immigration um, uh, applications. So the impact is really wide. But one thing I think that is really interesting, and this is not in what Biden said, but that it seems to be a step. There There has been a push for decriminalization of marijuana on the federal level. And this seems to me like the first step toward that. And the reason that that's important is because many states have already decriminalized marijuana, have legalized marijuana use um, and legalized marijuana distribution in a way that the states are regulating. And the federal law is just very out of step with that. And that's created a problem not only for individuals, but also businesses who in you know these states are trying to have customers to sell, but the there might be customers who are still afraid of the federal repercussions. So I feel like this is a step that Biden has taken, sort of sticking a toe in the water about maybe kind of evening the federal and state laws when it comes to that. Yeah, I think you're dead on the money. I think this is what you do when you're thinking about ways to legalize. You know, this deschedulizes, takes it off of the the schedule of illegal drugs. And I think you're right. It's a It's a first step. But Barb, you know, when I think about pardons writ large, I think about how much dysfunction we saw in the Trump White House around the issuance of pardons, the dangling of pardons, you know, who knows, maybe even the sale of pardons we'll learn someday. How did this procedure work and how does it compare to what we saw under Trump? Well, first, I imagine that this is something that um, was not uh, announced on the spur of the moment, that it is something that the Biden administration has been looking at probably since the beginning of the administration. And if you read the executive order, you will see that what it it includes is a direction to the attorney general uh, acting through the pardon attorney. So there is an office of the pardon attorney to administer all of this, um, to review all of the applicants who have been convicted of the offense of simple possession of marijuana. That's it. You know, as you said, not trafficking, not not conspiracy, not other kinds of cases involving violence. Um, and, you know, it goes on to talk about uh, reviewing all the applications, issuing certificates. And importantly, they are not identifying individuals by name. They're identifying them by conduct. And so this is not currying favor with, you know, Steve Bannon, but not the other three people charged in the same indictment um, who received pardons. This is everybody who was convicted of this particular offense, which, by the way, Joyce, I don't know about you, but in my former office, um, at least uh, as far back as the Obama administration, we weren't charging people with simple possession anyway. It's I because can't of figure out where all these resources. charges came from. Yeah, I mean, 
it's just you a maybe crazy once upon thing a time put resources up against. I think a lot are from DC. I think a, a yeah, I think that's right. They're the DC state court side of of that office. Yeah. So you know, across the rest of the country. Um, this is not a great volume of offenders. And the reason that people aren't charged is because of the the scarce resources that are better put to other types of crimes. And so that's one of the arguments that's always been made against charging people for simple marijuana possession is let's use our law enforcement resources to focus on other crimes that affect the quality of life for the rest of us. So it's a very professional, orderly uh, process uh, in stark contrast to some of the ways we saw Donald Trump use the pardon power. It appears to be um, used in a very even-handed way based on conduct, not based on individual. And um, you know, in that way, I think we can have confidence in the process that it will be administered fairly. Well, chalk one up for the rule of law, um, but this does happen surprisingly close to an election. I think you've actually done a lot to explain why that might be, Barb. This was something that Biden had talked about on the campaign trail, but I think it takes a while to bring all the stakeholders on board. You know, we used to always say, you can go fast alone or far together. And I suspect that this is the kind of policy changes change that requires a lot of different stakeholders to weigh in, which may explain the timing. But do you think it'll have political impact heading into the midterms? Well, already I've seen um, Republican senators tweeting about this and um, doing so in a misleading way. Uh, You know, as we've all emphasized, this is about the crime of simple possession of marijuana. You know, this is somebody on a corner with one, you know, marijuana cigarette, as it may say in the indictment, Um, you know, not trafficking. But instead, I saw Senator Tom Cotton, for example, said that Biden is um, pardoning people with drug convictions. Um, So, you know, very misleading, right? Because it suggests that it might include other substances, you know, cocaine, heroin, opioids, other kinds of things. And also um, not limiting it to simple possession, suggesting that that includes trafficking, which brings with it uh, organized crime and violence and other kinds of things. So I do think it will be a political uh, wedge issue. Um, you know, already because the economy has been improving, we've seen this shift to kind of law and order, and you know, Democrats uh, love criminals and want you to be unsafe and all of these kinds of things. So I imagine this will be used, and so. Uh, In some ways, it's a moment of political courage for President Biden. I imagine they did a political calculus to determine whether it would lose more voters than it attracts and came out on the plus side. But regardless of its political consequences, it it just seems like it's the right thing. It's, you know, it's a uh, we can see the way the tide is turning across the country. Marijuana is becoming legalized. And so the idea that we're spending, you know, time and money incarcerating people for um, marijuana possession just seems like time and money that could be better spent on our resources, you know, let alone what it does to the lives of the people who've been so incarcerated. Kim, what do you think? You always have your your finger on the pulse of the politics here. Yeah, I think this is something that can be politicized in some circumstances, but I think in other circumstances, particularly in these states where there has been uh, legalization or at least decriminalization. And some of those states are, um, you know, like places like Colorado and places that are important. I think that it will swing the other way. It will show that the federal government is finally in line with what people are doing on the state and local level. And I think overall, I think it's going to be a net benefit to Biden. 
Jill, do you want to have the final word on whether this works out politically? I will confess that I have often thought it would be a savvy move if you were running for political office to come out in favor of legalizing marijuana because I felt like the 18 to 25-year-olds would all come out and vote for you. And I wonder if this may have some impact on the midterms. It could have some impact. Um, I will be checking in with my Gen Z (laughs) colleague to find out. And uh, we just interviewed a group of Gen Z leaders, and so I'm going to check with them. But I I think whether it is a politically savvy move or not, it was the just thing to do, that it has had a disparate impact on people of color and in terms of who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. And I think that it's the right thing to do. So I'm I'm glad he did it. I hope it'll have a good impact on the election uh, because there's a lot at stake. And I think that this would be a good thing. So that's that's what I have to say about it. So we have reached what is truly our favorite part of the show, which is listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during our show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we answer as many of your questions as we can. So I want to start with a question from Lynn, which is, uh, does the former guy's lawsuit against CNN for defamation have any merit? And if not, might he or his attorney's face sanctions. Barb, this uh, defamation suit that Donald Trump brought against CNN, um, claiming just very vaguely that they said something bad about him. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think this is a a case that's going to be dismissed quite readily. Um, You know, there is a rule in the rules of civil procedure, rule 12b6, that um, governs the failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. That is, even assuming everything you say in your lawsuit, in your complaint is true, you have just failed to make out a legal claim. And the allegations in his complaint um, fail to cite any specific false statement about him. It just says things like, they constantly portray me in a negative light. Well, you know, if if the shoe fits. Um, <laughs> and so for that reason, I don't think he can make out the elements of um, of defamation. Um, and, and also that he suffered as a result of it. I mean, if anything, you know, he fundraises off of it, right? It, the, uh, the, the grievances and the resentment of the way he's portrayed by these enemies of the people. So I don't think so. And then the other question is, could attorneys face sanctions? I think the answer is yes. You know, I have found judges to be very reluctant to impose sanctions on lawyers. I think wanting to give them a lot of room to raise novel legal arguments, and I suppose that's a good thing. Um, But uh, from time to time, when a lawsuit is simply baseless and you've brought someone into court and made them uh, endure the expense and the harm to their public reputation by having to defend themselves in a lawsuit, I think sanctions are appropriate. We saw sanctions in a number of the cases that were brought by the Trump campaign falsely stating that the election had been stolen without any evidentiary basis. And those lawyers were sanctioned for that. And so I think it is quite possible we could see sanctions in this case as well. Can I add to that too? Because 
when I first saw this announcement about the CNN lawsuit, I immediately wrote to my sisters saying, what am I missing here? How did he get a legitimate lawyer to sign this complaint? Which, by the way, none of you answered. You all said to me, okay, 12B6, which of course is true. It fails to state a claim. First of all, it's opinion, and opinion is never actionable. Uh, secondly, he isn't going to be able to prove that a single statement that he alleges in this complaint is false. And if it's not false, then it isn't actionable. And so I think sanctions are inevitable. And Joyce, you did point out that the sanctions will pale in comparison to the amount of money he will raise. And so that for him it's a win because he will use it for fundraising. And that's outrageous. The courts should not be used for that purpose. It's always about the grift. Yeah, and, yeah. and I remember learning in law school something about the defamation proof plaintiff. You have to prove yes. an essential yes. element of this that his reputation was <laughs> like that in itself is just like, you know, that doesn't pass the giggle test. He is. He is just the libel-proof guy incarnate. <laughs> All right. So we have another question from Sandy. That reads, I read somewhere that all President Biden has to do is sign legislation and the ERA will become law because we have enough states signed on to ratify the amendment. Is this true? Jill, you are our resident ERA expert. What do you think? Well, I am the passionate ERA person, having started campaigning for this with Liz Carpenter, who was a phenomenal politician and political operative in 1976. And so I have been following this carefully. The other reason is that the case was brought by Illinois and Nevada, who were two of the last states, not the last, but two of the later states to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment to bring it to 38. Um, it was argued by my successor, not direct successor, but uh, my successor as Solicitor General of Illinois. So I'm very proud that it was came from Illinois and was argued by Illinois. And the truth is that 38 states have ratified it, that there is a very strong argument that the time limit that was set was not part of the actual constitutional amendment and therefore is not valid. And that therefore all that remains to be done is to have President Biden order the archivist to publish it, and then it's part of our Constitution. And I, for one, and think that women and men who care about equality should want the Equal Rights Amendment to protect us, us women, from the harm that we have suffered um, from Dobbs and other potential cases that may come up. So I am hoping it was argued, unfortunately, last week in the middle of the hurricane. And as a result of Hurricane Ian, it got no publicity. But maybe I'll put into the um, show notes the name of the case and a little um, link to where our listeners could find out about this and why the Equal Rights Amendment should, in fact, be announced as the final amendment or the the next amendment of our Constitution. Our last question comes from JLAN410. 
who asks, when does free speech become sedition, insurrection, or something sane people recognize as a blatant call for violence? That's interesting. Joyce, what do you think? You know, I think this is a great question. This is something that I'm sure they're struggling with at DOJ. Um, And what it comes down to, the law in this regard, is trying to balance your First Amendment right to speech versus this criminal compulsion that Congress has created to, to make it illegal to engage in sedition and seditious conspiracy. And so there's actually an old case, a 1969 Supreme Court case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, and it articulates this standard for when speech crosses the line using an imminent lawless action test. And essentially, it comes down to the fact that if you are in front of a crowd and you're whipping them into a frenzy and then sending them off to engage in violence, that they can do this sort of imminent ability to create lawless action, then that's too far. You've crossed the boundaries of your First Amendment rights and you've begun to engage in sedition. I think that's sort of the line. Defining it can be very difficult, right? I mean, in what situation would you decide that the person that was speaking had the ability to sort of whip the crowd? So there are a lot of fine line distinctions to be made, but at least we know what the legal standard is. Thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Wine Banks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. You can go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, which is a crowd favorite, our hoodie now that it's getting cold, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Blueland, Framebridge, Noom, and Speedify. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really make the show happen. Keep up with us every week by following hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. You know, it really helps other people find our show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. Thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Wine Banks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. You can go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, which is a crowd favorite, our hoodie now that it's getting cold, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Blueland, Framebridge, Noom, and Speedify. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really make the show happen. Keep up with us every week by following hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. You know, it really helps other people find our show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. Jill, did did Michael tell you that the dog was going to a farm in upstate New York? No, but I'll tell you a really sad. Show you some, I, you know, a lot of dogs kind of look alike. I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you something really sad. Is Michael went to camp when he was a little boy, and when he came home, his dog was gone. His mother had given the dog away, and he has never he never forgave her for that, and that's why we've had. Dalmatians after Dalmatians after we've it was a Dalmatian and we will never oh my gosh. N- well 
we might have to not have a Dalmatian again because they are really high energy, strong dogs. We but won't tell Michael yeah. you said that. Yeah, no, no, he knows it. We are looking at there's a new breed, a miniature breed of Dalmatian, but I don't know enough about them to know if they're healthy. Um, but yeah, they're they're we have a you know an 80 pound muscle mass who pulls me down all the time. He's really he's strong. <laughs>